I'm glad to be with you to worship today. Uh, I want to tell you a story first about the first time that I went to El Salvador on a mission trip. Uh, it was uh, 2005. Uh, it was my first mission trip since beginning what I would call an intentional relationship with Jesus. And there were so many things about that trip that I would want to stand up here and tell you about tonight. Uh, there are ways that God came into my life and, and, and just changed some things for me, uh, showed me so many things. But one of the things that, uh, that helped with that, one piece of that, was uh, meeting a person. There was a pastor at the Shalom Home. It's a children's home in El Salvador. It cares for uh, orphaned or abandoned kids. Uh, and, and they had a pastor they had just hired to be, uh, his sole job was to work in the home with the kids and the, some, of, some of the surrounding community. The pastor's name was Juan Carlos, and he's, he's a person that I don't think I'm ever going to forget. And Juan Carlos was a decent preacher, uh, at least as far as I could tell. He preached in Spanish, and my Spanish speaking, eh, I, I could kind of understand what he was preaching. Uh, when it was translated to me, I, I heartily agreed with it. But it wasn't his preaching that impressed me the most. Uh, and on top of being a preacher, he was a, a pretty good soccer player, which comes in handy when you're the pastor at a children's home in Latin America, right? He, the, he could get on the, basketball, the concrete basketball court where they played all their soccer games, and he could keep up with the teenagers like, like no one else. Uh, and so I would try my hardest to play, to play soccer with these kids, uh, but the problem was they had been playing since they could walk, and I had not. Juan Carlos, though, was a Salvadoran, and so he, he and he, I think he actually played on some amateur leagues in his young adult years, and so still in his mid-30s, he could keep up pretty well with those teenagers. But even that wasn't what impressed me the most about Juan Carlos. What impressed me the most about Juan Carlos was the way he lived his life as a follower of Jesus. Juan Carlos had been a pastor at a pretty large church, a growing uh, Protestant church in San Salvador. And I can't remember exactly how the story goes, but as he was sharing his testimony with us, uh, it, it was either that he felt convicted by the Holy Spirit to leave that church to go to a new ministry, or maybe it was that Don and Roseanne Benner, the uh, operators and founders of that children's home, felt convicted by the Holy Spirit to ask Juan Carlos. At some point, they got connected, and Juan Carlos felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to leave that prominent church leadership position to become the pastor at a children's home. Sixty-something kids, a very poor community, and a very poorly attended Sunday church service went with that. He had to give up his house that at that point I think was a pretty nice-sized house in San Salvador to move uh, into a one-bedroom apartment with his wife and his two-year-old daughter. He uh, probably gave up the prospects of uh, what many in ministry would consider a successful ministry career so he could go and spend time with these kids that people had forgotten about. And what impressed me was just that he was willing to leave so many things that our world considers uh, good, big, successful things so he could go and follow God's path. And it showed in how he lived his whole life. I can remember uh, Juan Carlos didn't just uh, spend time preparing sermons uh, and being the pastor, but uh, when work was needed to be done, like when we were mixing concrete by hand to pour uh, a new area so that there would be not, uh, so there would not be as bad erosion. Uh, Juan Carlos got in there 
with a shovel and started, started mixing concrete by hand with us, right? How many senior pastors do that? When their church needs work done, they're the first to grab a shovel. Uh, Juan Carlos not only would play soccer with those teenage boys, but he would, he would develop relationships so that he could show them that they were loved, so that could, he could be a father figure for them, so that he could uh, lead them in how to follow Jesus. And so for me, seeing the life of Juan Carlos, it, it was a huge ministry to me. It, it left a mark on me. It made me ask myself a lot of questions. Tonight we're starting a study on Paul. We're going to do this for the next six weeks. And, and Paul the Apostle, uh, it hands down one of the most influential people in the world we live in. Some people would say he's the most influential person after Jesus, right? He, he is responsible for authoring, or he's credited with, with writing, 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. He is the uh, responsible apostle for uh, spreading the gospel of Jesus, not just to the Jews, but to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles, the Greeks. Paul is a, a big person in a lot of ways. And if you've ever read his writings, you know, his theological uh, thoughts and, and, and some of those things, they're some of the central things that help us understand who Jesus is and how to follow Jesus. But as we study Paul, we're actually, we're not going to focus as much on the 13 books that he authored through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that became a part of the New Testament. We're going to focus a little bit more in this study on the life of Paul. You know, maybe God didn't just want to use Paul as a writer of the New Testament. Maybe God didn't just want to use Paul as uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. Maybe in some ways God wanted to use Paul as an example that we could follow. And so as we go through this, uh, today we're just going to look at his early life. In the next five weeks, we'll look at uh, the rest of his life. Uh, what I'm going to keep asking is, uh, what does this part of Paul's life show us about what it looks like to follow Jesus? What could we take from Paul's life and apply it to our life and, and maybe have some more growth happen? Are there ways that we need to look at Paul as an example of a follower of Jesus? And I think... Uh, I think that's uh, going to give us some good stuff to think about. It's probably going to give us too much stuff to think about. Uh, so let me pray for us, and we're going to dive into Paul's life. Let's pray. Jesus, we're thankful for your grace that is here with us. We're thankful for the rain and the thunder and uh, being able to sit and enjoy uh, this, this beautiful weather you've given us uh, that's not so hot in a summer day. We're thankful that you continue to grow us and that you have given us many examples in the faith. And so today, as we look at the life of Paul the Apostle, God, I pray that you would allow his life to become a little bit more down-to-earth for us, that we can maybe observe the ways that you have worked in his life, and that we can open up our lives and ask you to come and work in similar ways. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you, Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So Paul the Apostle. But, but who is this guy? Well, to start with, you know, Paul, Paul gave his, he shared his own testimony in a number of times, mostly because he was arrested a number of times and had to defend himself a number of times over the course of his life. And, and in some of those instances, what we see is a remarkably consistent picture of Paul's early life. In one of those instances, 
Paul introduces himself like this. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia. Now, Paul, just to start with, comes from a Jewish family. His name actually at birth was not Paul, but it was Saul. He was named after the first king of Israel. If you go back to the Old Testament, it's kind of interesting. Uh, and it's, it's notable that he was a Jew born into a Jewish family, but that was a Jewish family that at the time did not live in Jerusalem or even that, the area of Judea, where we would think a lot of Jews lived during that time. Paul's family was part of what we know of the diaspora. It was the, the, the Jews and the followers of Judaism who were spread out across the Roman Empire outside of Jerusalem. Uh, there were actually kind of a lot of diaspora Jewish communities, and they tended to, uh, to preserve their culture, kind of like we see immigrants doing today, uh, settle in a new place and bring their customs and their culture uh, and, and have a number of families in the area that they would know. And so Paul was born uh, in Tarsus, but we know he had uh, a Jewish upbringing. Now, Tarsus is in the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, it's, it's actually in modern-day Turkey. It's the upper right part of that map. Tarsus was about 10 miles from the coast, and it was a notable city. Uh, it was such a notable city that uh, the Roman Empire allowed it to be a free city. That means, that means that it was exempt from Roman taxes, which would be kind of a nice thing, right? We're all imagining what that would be like. Well, it was a free city, and so th there's, there's a good chance that the Roman Empire, in trying to keep the peace, wanted to uh, have a good relationship with certain people in Tarsus. They wanted to uh, use some political capital, so they made it a free city so that, uh, so that the people of Tarsus would say good things about the Roman Empire, basically. There were about 200,000 people living in Tarsus in that day, uh, and what we know about the city is that it was kind of a cultural hub of the area for Greek and Roman thought. One of the philosophers that writes during the time of Jesus, sometime in the first century, uh, he actually writes that the philosophy that was studied in Tarsus rivals that of Athens and Alexandria. That's kind of a big thing to say. Well, why is that important? Why would I stand up here and talk about that? Uh, I'm not just spouting off random facts. That's important because if Paul grew up in Tarsus, if he's from Tarsus, he would have been around Greek culture and Greek thought. He would have learned about uh, rhetoric in a Greek understanding of rhetoric. He would have learned the Greek language. He would have learned it well. He would have been exposed to it. And then he would have learned Greek literature. And it's interesting because all three of those things we see throughout Paul's writings. Right. The other thing that we know, though, is that Paul didn't just grow up in Tarsus. He finishes that sentence by saying, but I was brought up in this city. Now, he's speaking from Jerusalem at the time. So he was brought up in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So at some point, the, the thought is that uh, Paul's Jewish parents wanted him to have a good Jewish education uh, under a Jewish rabbi. It was the dream of all good Jewish families at the time. So when he was probably 10 or 11 years old, there's a good chance that they shipped him off to Jerusalem and he began to study under Gamaliel. And Gamaliel is actually a known rabbi from the first century. He's probably the most notable rabbi from the first century. So Paul had what would be considered kind of an elite Jewish education in Jerusalem. And at the same time, he grew up in a Greek society, in a Greek city with a lot of culture. And it's just, it's kind of interesting to note that 
Paul having this kind of dual background with uh, the Greek culture and the Jewish religious education, he is uniquely suited for the mission that God ended up calling him on, right? He became the apostle to the Gentiles. We'll learn more about that in future weeks. Uh, But someone that has a strong Jewish upbringing could recognize uh, the significance of the resurrection and the hope for Messiah that the Jewish people were looking for. And someone with a Gentile uh, understanding of culture and rhetoric and literature uh, and the language could go and speak with Greek people and tell them about that in their own terms. It's interesting, even before Paul was aware of it, God was at work preparing him for a unique role And that's the first place we need to stop and ask a question. How has God been working in our lives to form us for a unique role? Are there ways in our upbringing or in our history, in our life experiences, that God may have uh, suited us for a particular place of service or ministry? I know for myself, a big part of my um, spiritual growth happened when I was a teenager in my youth group. And so for many years, uh, I I basically realized that God had done a big thing in me when I was a teenager and that he could probably use me to reach other teenagers well. I was passionate about helping teenagers wrestle with the issues of faith and come to to have their own faith, something that's not just uh, adopted from their parents, but something that becomes their own beliefs. And I did that here at Bethany for quite a while, uh, youth ministry. And it was something that uh, uniquely fit my life because that was a big part of my life growing up. But I wonder for you, where has God had let you have certain experiences where he wants to use those experiences to let you reach into other people's lives? That's the first question that we're going to get to. I warn you, there's going to be a lot more questions to reflect on. So the next place we get to is Saul the persecutor. Uh, we, don't, we don't know exactly when Saul was born or how old he was when Jesus died, um, but, but we know that he had this Jewish education that probably went from about age 10 or 11 to his early 20s. And we know that he excelled in that education. This is what he writes in the beginning of the letter to the Galatians. He says, "'For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, "'how I persecuted the church of God violently "'and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now, uh, what's, what's interesting here is it seems like uh, Paul had this extreme ambition about his faith. He was zealous. That's the word that comes up a number of times. And, and I'd never tell someone that it's bad to be zealous uh, about God. I think for Paul, what was bad is that Uh, It was misguided in a few ways. And what may have happened at some point, as he is a a young, up-and-coming Jewish uh, leader who's a part of the Pharisees, he may have at some point decided, uh, you know, if I want to keep climbing the ladder of religious leadership, I need to prove my worth. It seems like somewhere in here, uh, and I'm, I'm reading into it a little bit, it seems like it may have been a temptation for Paul to have kind of a lot of personal ambition, to want to make a name for himself, and maybe that's part of what drove him to persecute the church so much. And so we, we see this persecution happening in a number of ways. Uh, the, the biggest way we see it happening is in the story of Stephen the martyr. Stephen is one of the deacons in the early church, and, and he ends up getting martyred for his faith. Uh, right after he's martyred, we're told basically that Saul, who we know as Paul, 
was basically their approving of it. In Acts 8, it says this, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Before Paul was an apostle, he was an enemy of the church. His ambition seems to have gotten the better of him. And he, was, he thought he was doing God's work. He was actually uh, working against God's work. I don't know if uh, maybe there's a couple of takeaways from this. First, first off, uh, even though Paul was trying to undo the work of the church, you know, he actually ended up furthering it. You know what we see in here in this persecution? When the persecution started, uh, the early church had to spread out. They ran away. Well, guess what happened when the early Christians ran away from Jerusalem? They spread Christianity to the rest of the Roman Empire. Paul was used by God even before he was willing to be used by God. I wonder if sometimes that doesn't happen in our own life. The other thing I think, though, that we can ask ourselves is, is there a time when we ourselves get an ambition, this desire to make much of ourselves, to make a name for ourselves? Are there times when we need to lay down our ambitions so we can uh, make much of God instead? I think that's probably true for all of us in some ways. If we keep following along Paul's story, we, we eventually get to uh, what I'll call this the good news. It's Paul's conversion. And this is a very unique uh, story. He, he tells this story and retells it a number of times in the book of Acts. And in this case, this is how he describes it. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is, this is pretty remarkable. Uh, even though Paul was not around during the resurrection, uh, he, he was not associated with the early church then and the disciples then. Paul basically has a resurrection experience here. It's almost like Jesus made a special exception and came back so that Paul could have a resurrection experience. This is a pretty powerful uh, event that's happening. You know, the interesting thing about it uh, is what Jesus says to him. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's telling him that in persecuting the church... Paul is actually persecuting Jesus. That's got to be kind of hard to hear. The other thing he says that's really interesting is maybe hard to understand. It says, Jesus tells him, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. What in the world does that mean? Well, a goad, it's helpful to know what a goad is. So I looked it up. A goad is a, a thing that was used for herding cattle and and sheep and goats it was a basically a stick with a barb and a hook on the end kind of like a fireplace poker that's what i found online at least it looks like a fireplace poker and the way you would use that is you would if you wanted the animal to turn a certain way you would put the goad on the outside of that animal 
And if the animal came up into contact with it, it would get pricked and it would want to go away from the pricking, right? Because we don't like being in pain. So eventually you could turn an animal in a direction you wanted it to go. What's fascinating about this is that Jesus is basically telling Paul, hey, I've been poking and prodding you for a little while now to try to gently turn you. And I don't have the patience for that anymore. <laughs> right? It seems like Paul, even though the Holy Spirit was poking and prodding at him to turn his life around, to turn into a different direction, it seems like Paul was pushing back against it. Man, that, that's, that's not, that doesn't feel very good, right? To push against something that's pricking you. Uh, Paul may have had a stubborn streak. <laughs> But this is a big part of, uh, of what we see in the story is that Jesus was, had been working for a while to help Paul come to an understanding of who Jesus is. And at some point, it seems like Jesus said, all right, if we're not going to do this the easy way, we'll do this the hard way. Here's the rest of that story, what happens after Paul encounters Jesus there. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so that bright light, it was bright enough to blind him for the moment. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. All right, so this guy, Paul, ends up getting blinded for three whole days. And he doesn't eat anything. He doesn't drink anything. This kind of sounds like rock bottom to me. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Apparently that's a good thing to say if God ever speaks your name to you. To say, here I am, Lord. That's a good thing to say. Old and New Testament would, would agree with me in that. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So God is leading Ananias to go and be a part of Paul regaining his sight. And what do you think Ananias thinks about this? God, I'm so excited that you're going to let me be a part of something big. You're going to, you're going to let me be the one that restores sight to the person that wrote half the New Testament. Uh, this is, would be Ananias's uh, future self speaking back to him. That's actually not what he says in the moment. Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call in your name. So Ananias is saying, God, are you sure? This doesn't seem like a good idea. Like I've been warned about this guy. He's the one I'm supposed to avoid. What are, you, what are you doing to me, God? And the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So God doesn't waver. He says, Ananias, I'm sure that there's a bigger purpose to this. And I love the sound of that thunder. And so Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. How cool is that? That God uh, didn't just bust into Paul's life on his own and uh, convert Paul and be a part of that. That it wasn't, what I'm trying to say, that wasn't just God breaking into his life in isolation that was a big part of Paul's conversion. It was also the fact that God wanted to use someone else to do it. He used Ananias, who was scared out of his mind. But God assured him, and Ananias was obedient. He had the courage to go and do what God called him to do. And because of that, Paul was able to regain his sight. And then it looks like Ananias probably baptized him and gave him food. What, what a neat thing to be a part of. You ever think Ananias later on in life thought through, man, I didn't realize who I was uh, helping come to know Jesus at the time, but that's kind of a big deal. It, it is a big deal. There's a couple things that we can, oh, I had a picture. This is uh, actually uh, a modern day arch. It's called the Roman arch at the street called Straight. So that street right there is the street that Paul was waiting at uh, for three days. Now, what would have happened if Ananias didn't respond to God's call? I mean, we don't know for sure. Uh, I'm sure God would have called someone else, but uh, I think it's a huge thing that Ananias was a part of what God did. So there's a couple questions we could ask ourselves about this part of Paul's life. Uh, the first one is kind of the obvious one. Uh, if, you know, looking at Ananias helping him, uh, is there anyone in our lives who God might be calling us to go and to reach out to. Maybe, maybe there's someone who you, God wants you to pray over them so they can be healed. That still happens. Uh, maybe there's just someone in your neighborhood or in your community that God wants you to go and, and, and love on a little bit more to remind them how much they, they are loved by God. Uh, it's, there's probably someone in all of our lives, but uh, who in your own life can you think of that God might be calling you to go to the other thing that we might want to reflect on is, you know, Paul is known for this story. He retells this story of his conversion multiple times, and it, it begs the question of us, do we know our own story well enough that we could share our own story of faith? Now, I think there's a few obstacles here. I've heard a lot of people say things like, well, I didn't have any Damascus Road experience like Paul, so I'm, I'm not really sure I have much of a story to share. You know, I didn't have a Damascus Road experience either. I think all of us, though, have a story to share. You might not have one moment where you can identify, this is where I became a Christian, or this is where I started following Jesus for myself. I think some people have those moments, and I think those are great to share. I think for many of us, there's not one moment, but there's, there's a number of different high points, right? I could look at my own life, and I could say, when I was in middle school, and I, was, I went through these, this time of doubting and uh, my mom sent me to go talk to a counselor, and that didn't really help. And then I, I actually, reading the Bible actually kind of helped me out. And then uh, I can think of it when I was 17, and I, and I realized it's not about going to church. It's about having a relationship with God. Oh, my gosh, that, that sounded so much better, right? And then I can remember when I started reading the Bible for myself, and I read something, and I thought, oh, my gosh, God, if you're calling me to, to be obedient to this part of the Bible, then and it was like the Gospels. It was in Matthew. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. I just don't know if I'm good enough. And I realized my need for God's grace. 
And in all of those places, God was saving me. He was doing some big conversion activity in my heart, even though there's not one of them in isolation that is the only time, right? I just think for all of us, though, we need to look back and, and ask, our, ask that question, where has God been at work in my life that I can point to? And I think all of us could sketch out some kind of a story, and I think for all of us that story continues on. The last part we'll look at tonight is, is Paul's ministry beginning and the desert years. And uh, just really quickly, I'll touch on this. Um, right after that story in Acts 9 that we read where Paul is baptized and starts to eat food, the next line says, immediately he began to preach about Jesus. I think a lot of times we think that the best people to do in ministry are people that have been Christians for a long time. And I'll push against that a little bit. I've heard someone assert that maybe the best evangelist is the person that just came into a relationship with Jesus. If you've ever been around someone that just became a Christian as an adult, there is an excitement in that person. There is something happening there. Uh, and sometimes we tend to write those people off as like, well, they're, they're just a little uh, overexcited. No, God is doing something. And so it wasn't long after Paul was baptized and he regained his strength after not eating for three days that God started to use Paul to be in ministry, to start to tell people that this Jesus who rose from the dead is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. He is the one. And so I think it's remarkable that Paul basically gets used in ministry right away, but then uh, Paul writes about the events that happen right after this. And he says that... Uh, when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not go immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. What Paul is saying here, he's really trying to build up a case in Galatians that um, he learned about the good news of Jesus from Jesus himself. He didn't, he didn't try to copy or emulate anyone else for a number of years. But what it seems like happens is right after he starts preaching in Damascus, uh, he actually, in another part of Acts, uh, he has to like escape Damascus at night because the Jews get so mad at his preaching they decide they're going to kill him. It seems like he escapes from Damascus to Arabia, to the wilderness, to the desert. Now, this is the same desert that Jesus was tempted in for 40 days before he began his ministry. It's the same desert that the Israelites wandered around in for 40 years before they got to the promised land. Uh, Paul, Paul, he takes the middle road. He gets three years. Is That's what it seems like. And, and it, it seems like what he's saying is he took three years to go away into the wilderness and then to come back to Damascus, but three years to learn and to grow and to make sense of all of this change that had started happening in his life. You know, that happens to be the normal amount of time it takes to get a Master's of Divinity degree. So I've always thought it'd be neat if Paul was getting an MDiv, but I think what he was probably doing is he was probably being prepared by God, informed by God, for the ministry God had planned for him. And a lot of that stuff happens when we take time to be away. When we get out of our busy, busy world 
when we uh, get away from some of the distractions and, and just spend some devoted time with God. I'm not sure anyone here needs to uh, plan a trip tomorrow for three years into the wilderness, spiritual retreat. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that would be good in a number of ways. I'm sure that would be undoable in a number of ways too. But I think the question for us to reflect on is, you know, how often do we take time just to sit and be with God? Do we take time to let God form us and shape us? Do we take time away from the busyness of life? I think that's something we're thinking about. And so we've talked about, we've talked about a number of parts of Paul's early life, and that's pretty much all of Paul's early life we're going to cover today. But I want to leave you with one final scripture that I think it encapsulates some of the biggest stuff about Paul's early life and his early uh, following of Jesus. I'm going to read this. It's, it's one of my favorite uh, passages in the whole Bible. Paul writes this uh, to the Philippians. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to the zeal of a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I like to call this Paul's religious pedigree, right? It's his, uh, it's his big introduction as the perfect Jewish person who earned uh, a spot before God better than anyone else. I wonder what our own religious pedigree would look like if we were to, to write one up. Because right after Paul says this, then these words come. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul is a giant of a Christian figure. He is a I think he's a super apostle. He is responsible for uh, writing much of the New Testament. He is responsible for the gospel spreading to the Gentiles. But in all that Paul did, what Paul is telling us here is the most important thing of all this was his following Jesus. That any recognition he might have or think he had, he's willing to give that up just because Jesus is so much better. And so, you know, I hope some of the other parts of Paul's life were uh, stirred up some questions for you. I hope that when you look at his upbringing and uh, him as a persecutor with a lot of ambition and Paul and his conversion and then his ministry in the desert life, I hope that all of that uh, or that parts of that spoke to you more than others, that, that you have some questions going on in your head to go home and think about. But maybe the biggest question of all is, is right here. It's, are we willing to give up everything so we can follow Jesus, like Paul talks about? Are we willing to let go of other things long enough to enjoy Jesus more than anything else? Can we agree with Paul that there is a surpassing worth of knowing Jesus? Before, before anything else, Paul was just called to be a follower of Jesus like us. And so, as we look at his life, I'll invite you tonight and this week to consider uh, how is God calling you to follow Jesus deeper, further? I can't answer that for you, but the Holy Spirit can. Let's pray.
Jesus, we need you more than we like to admit sometimes. We're thankful that we have many that have gone before us in this journey. And we can look at examples, not just the teachings of Paul, but his life as an example for us. I pray that, God, as we continue to go through this series, you would teach us something about Paul, but more than that, teach us about ourselves. Show us the ways that we uh, still need you. Show us the ways that uh, we need to take steps like Paul took to give up things of the world so that we can hold on more tightly to you and enjoy you more. God, we pray uh, that you give us the courage to take steps forward in this journey to following Jesus. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.